This podcast contains adult language and explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Grant. And I'm Erica. And this is From From Crime Crime to to Crime. Welcome back to From Crime to Crime, John and Jane Doe's. We're happy to have you. Ooh, John and Jane Doe's. I like that. Yeah, I thought we'd change it up a little bit. You know, we haven't exactly decided on what we're going to call our fans. So I figured I'd give a little bit of options. Cadaver dogs, crime dogs, John and Jane no, Doe's. No, 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 no. That's way better than cadaver dogs and crime dogs. Well, if you like John and Jane Doe's, go to our Instagram at From Crime to Crime and let us know that you're into John and Jane Doe instead of cadaver dogs or crime dogs. But you'll be going against me. You'll be going against me. <laughs> I want crime dogs or cadaver dogs. I think that sounds so cool. If I was a, oh, I am a fan base. Actually, I'm a fan of us. I want to be called crime dogs. Anybody else? Come to our Instagram and let us know from crime to crime. We're also on email from crime to crime podcast at gmail.com. Come find us. We're out there. <laughs> You're so funny. This week, we're going to get started on one of the one of the cases that I think has really confused the FBI for 40, 50 years. That's so we're going to jump into D.B. Cooper. Oh, shit. Has it been 50 years? 71? Yeah. Let me do some quick math. What, what are you getting a calculator out? It's been 50 I years. Did. I got a calculator out because you told me how in my last episode I did very poorly in math. <laughs> and so I don't want to have that, that ridicule again. So I did pull out a calculator. <laughs> it's been 50 years since D.B. Cooper happened. Oh, bud. So I'm really excited to jump into D.B. Cooper. And I feel like D.B. Cooper is a lot like the Zodiac Killer because it's unsolved. And it just brings out the absolute weirdest in its fan base. Oh, yeah. Me included. I'm like obsessed with this case. It's hard not to be. Yeah, you can go down some crazy rabbit holes. And every other day, I'm convinced I've solved it. Then I watch another documentary and it's like, oh, no, it's that guy. It it literally could be anybody. That's the thing about D.B. Cooper. It could be absolutely anybody, and we have no idea. Everybody's got a theory, but we'll get right into it because I'm pretty sure everybody knows the case, so we're not going to give you like a crazy backstory. Anybody who's slightly interested in true crime knows this story. I agree. I think most people who do know true crime are really interested in D.B. Cooper because there's so many moving parts to it, and the balls on this guy were just so impressive, honestly, because he just did what what he wanted. Because it was 1971. It was a lawless land. And he could. (laughs) You always say that. Like, there was no rules back in the day. That's exactly how I feel. Pre, like, 1998, I feel like just anything (laughs) went at all. Maybe 97. But other than that, we're pushing it. (laughs) Because I do feel like everything just kind of went for whatever you wanted. Yeah. Well, this happened on Thanksgiving Eve in 1971. So November 24th. And this guy walked up to the ticket counter at Portland International Airport and he bought a plane ticket for $20 from Portland to Seattle, which is like a 30 minute flight. It's super short. Yeah, I'm surprised that there's even flights from Portland to Seattle because it is so quick. I don't know about how long it would take to drive because I know even like L.A. to San Francisco is only like a 30 minute flight, but it's like an eight hour drive. Mm, That's a good point. I didn't think about that. Yeah. And 20 bucks, even in 1971 standards. I would assume $20 is not that much money. So it's crazy to see how much inflation has increased things in such a small amount of time. Well, and there was no security or anything. He just walked up to the gate, gave the lady 20 bucks, and he boarded. He's like, I just want the next flight to Seattle. And he just got on. I'm like, oh, 
He probably could have flown the plane, honestly, in 1971. Well, that may be true because he specifically asked the lady at the ticket counter if it was a Boeing 727. It's like, I've never bought a plane ticket and asked him what plane it was. To be fair, I don't think I've ever bought a plane ticket at the counter, though. Well, that's I also true too. wouldn't have thought to ask what the flight was. So yeah, or what the plane was. So it's probably he probably does have at least some kind of idea of what he's talking about. But when he shows up, he's not just showing up in a t-shirt and shorts. Like this guy is kind of really dressed up. He's in a black suit and tie. He's got a white shirt on. You know, he's in his mid forties carrying a briefcase. He really isn't somebody who's going to stand out as somebody who needs to be have a second look given to him you know no i mean back then i think suit and ties were pretty common on a plane like people used to dress up to take flights people used to dress up to go to baseball games i know now when i go to the airport it's like I, there better not be a waist on my pants i better not have laces on my shoes like i want to be as comfortable as possible <laughs> most people go to court in a lot less than a black suit and tie so <laughs> right so he sat in the back of the plane and he ordered a bourbon and soda what a fancy man. I know. That's very 1971, I feel like. Bourbon. I thought it was really interesting that the plane was only about one third of the way full, too. But it was on time for about 2.50 p.m. But I feel like maybe he knew that a flight may not be as full going at that time from for such a short distance, too. So it probably was a little more calculated than not that he wanted to jump on this flight. I don't know if that's the case because the day before Thanksgiving is like the biggest traveling day of the year. Why would Good he have point. picked that day if he was trying to pick a not crowded flight? I don't think he cared how many people were on the flight. He may never have even thought about it. You're right. Yeah, I don't think it mattered to him. I think it's interesting that the plane was only a third full. I've never been on a plane that's a third full or one that's taken off on time. So, 1971, man. Lawless land. Things happen that normally don't. The good old days, man. I guess so. You can walk your loved one to the gate. And get to where you needed to go on time with with a third of a flight. Yeah. So after takeoff, he hands Florence Schaffner, who was a flight attendant on the flight, a note. And she just shoved it in her purse because she thought he was hitting on her and giving her That's his my phone favorite number. part. That's w- at least one of my favorite parts of this oh, whole know. story is this woman is given a note saying that he's going <laughs> to say what he's going to do to the plane. <laughs> and she just goes, OK, and just puts it in her pocket like, oh, I just get hit on all the time. You know? I, well, because back then they used, I mean, flight attendants, that was like a thing. Airlines like promoted being gross to their flight attendants. That was like a thing. It was. They were like, oh, look at our pretty flight attendants. It's like, whoa, that feels like. So much so that it wasn't, it didn't even register with her. It wasn't even a big deal that somebody slipped her a note. She's just, all right, cool. She probably collected several of them a day, I would imagine. I know. He had to whisper to her, you better take a look at that note. I have a bomb. Before she even was like, Could you imagine? took it serious. Well, at least when she like when he whispered that she kind of looked at the bomb and and his briefcase and kind of was like, oh, this is this might be a problem. We we should do something. Yeah. A couple of things that I saw said that she kind of had a meltdown when he showed her the bomb and that he was super sweet to her. And he like gently calmed her down and like was like, hey, cool it. Take a breath. This is already such a weird story. I mean, because when he opens it up, he's holding what at least looks like to her. We don't know for sure, but eight sticks of dynamite and some wires. Imagine being a flight attendant, seeing that, and yeah, I can understand her being a little freaked out about what's happening right in front of her. After Flo's little meltdown, he gave her a note that said exactly what he wanted and told her to take it up to the pilots with what his demands were. His demands were 200000 in negotiable currency. 
four parachutes, and of course, no cops. Because who wants cops in this situation? I've right seen now? so many he things wants... that says that he said no fuzz. I'm like, no, no fuzz. <laughs> I, hey, you know what? I can't believe people used to talk like that. If you're as cool as he is right now in 1971, you could probably say no fuzz and, yeah. and get away with it with no problems. Yeah. He also wanted a fuel truck standing by in Seattle before they landed so that they could refuel and he could get back on, back in the air. So he had asked Flo to bring the note back to him when she was done giving the pilots the demands. So after they radioed down to Seattle and gave all the demands and they were working on it, she went back to give him the note back and he was wearing sunglasses, which stuck out to a couple of people on the flight. I would imagine like he looks so cool in this and in the, in the sketches that you see, like he goes from kind of looking like a, just a typical dude. Like he looks cool, you know? And I know we're not supposed to like, you know, celebrate the criminals but i dig db cooper man i know everybody likes it he's cool he's in a suit he's got a briefcase he sends a note to the stewardess who takes it to the pilot they come back he's in sunglasses he's just cool like the fawns well he's not the fuzz he's the fawns yeah so nobody on the plane knew that they were hijacked like that was the one Real good part of this was he was calm. He tried to keep the flight attendants calm. Nobody on the plane had any idea. So the FBI starts scrambling on the ground doing the logistics. And Northwest Orient's president, Donald Nyrup, authorized the payment of the ransom. So apparently that's the deal when you're being extorted or asked for ransom. Even if the FBI is involved, it's up to you whether you want to pay it or not. That is very interesting. I mean, obviously, a plane full of people, or not full, but with 35 people, you're going to, you're probably going to give in to what the person wants. I mean, 35, that's a, still a good amount of people. Maybe not as full as it could have been, but that's still a substantial amount of people. Yeah. I, ju- I didn't know that. I thought the FBI never negotiated with terrorists, but I didn't realize that it's up to you. If you, that apparently, if you want to pay it, the FBI will not step in, they'll just let you do it. Well, I think what's interesting, too, is that the plane just circled over the Puget Sound until they got word that the money and the chutes were ready for him. I know they went to a skydiving school to get the four parachutes, and I know they went to a bank to get all of the money, you know, handled, which is kind of funny, too, that the FBI shows. I mean, what do you do when the FBI shows up and goes, hi, we'd like uh, $200,000 in cash. Yeah. And we're the FBI, so you have to give it to they us. They specifically said that they wanted it in $20 bills because they figured it. he said negotiable currency. So they figured that it would be harder for him because that was a 21 pound bag of money. That's a lot of weight, I guess. I don't know. That's a heavy bag. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm not a skydiver, so I don't know how much 20 pounds would matter. But like you said, the plane continued to circle, though, and the people on the plane realized that their 30 minute flight was now a two hour flight. Probably some red flags right there, yeah. Yeah, but they were I guess they were told that it was mechanical, like a slight mechanical problem, and they were trying to fix it. So when everybody got off the plane, they didn't know. Time out. So their their excuse was, hey, you guys are on the plane for an hour and a half longer because there's something mechanical wrong, and we're going to fly around the water until it's fixed? Well, I'm sure they just told them something like the landing gear was not coming down or something. I don't know. Who knows? Yeah, they probably gave him some free, from free drinks and said, shut up. Yeah. They <laughs> We're might. dealing with a lot more than what you got. Yeah, they might not have told him anything. I don't know. It was also like crazy pouring down rain that night, so maybe they just told him that they couldn't land because of the weather. Who knows? That would have been more believable if, if you asked right, me. Right, me too. But I know there was another flight attendant, Tina Mucklow, and 
this dude's just chilling. She got him another bourbon soda, and you know he even tried to tip her. Yeah, I saw that too. I was like, oh, you. I don't know that I would take that tip. I don't. I mean, I don't actually, think I probably she... would. Let's be real. I don't think she did. I've I've seen things that said that she refused it. I can understand that, but at that point too, I'm probably taking the money. I mean, this yeah. dude is. Yeah. What's the point? Yeah. Everything that they all say is that he was super nice to them, and he was cool the whole time. He even ordered the crew's meals. Like when they landed in Seattle, he had food brought on the plane for the crew. Probably because he was like, hey, this is going to be a whole thing. It's This is going to take a while. You're going to need some food to fly me out of here. Yeah, I'm getting $200,000, guys. I'll pay for it. No problem. Just throwing down stacks. No big. Yeah. So when everything was finally ready, they landed. And Tina Mucklow, the second flight attendant, went out and got the money. And the fuel truck began to fill the tanks and everything. She also grabbed the parachutes and... Then the FBI asked him to let the passengers off. And once he checked the money and the parachutes, he said, yeah, go ahead. And he let all the passengers and most of the flight crew off of the plane. Well, and then that's what's interesting to me, too, is that when they got back on the plane, he talked to the pilot and he basically let the pilot decide the route that they would take to get going. And he wanted to go to Mexico. That was his big thing. He wanted to get to Mexico. Mm -hmm. And he let the pilot decide, hey, this is where we're going to go, and or this is where we're going to go, but I want you to figure out how to get there, which you'd think someone this elaborate would have already a flight path in mind, but he didn't really think everything through. No. that Well, and that's where it goes back and forth all the time, because there's things where it's like, oh, he was obviously super smart and thought this whole thing through, and then there's some things where it's like, oh, he was an idiot. Absolutely. He you, was obviously just flying by the seat of his pants. Absolutely. You, you think that he does have everything going on, especially when you hear, oh, this guy got on a plane, he had a bomb, he you know knew what he wanted, he had demands. But I think that's where he stopped thinking, because <laughs> once he gets on, he's just he just kind of wings it, it sounds. Yeah. Like. Well, and I feel like if you're going to pull some stunt like this, you obviously have to be like, well, I'm either going to live or die. He must have been at a very desperate point where he was just like, fuck it, whatever happens, happens. Well, he gave him spe- really specific flying instructions, too, and he wanted them to go as low as possible mm-hmm. without stalling. So I think that's about 115 miles per hour. Mm-hmm. The crazy thing was he wanted them to be less than 10,000 feet in the air and to leave the rear stairs and the landing gears down, which they couldn't do the stairs because they wouldn't have been able to take off that way. Which is but not they true. Were able to leave. Well, that's what they told him. That's what they told him. They told him that, but he argued. He didn't argue. He like said, actually, you can take off with them down, but I'm not going to argue. Just take off with them up, and then I'll I'll put them down once we get in the air. So it's it's like he knew stuff about the plane that even the pilots didn't know because they thought they couldn't take off with the stairs down. I think they knew they could take off with the stairs down. I think they didn't want to take off with the stairs down. Well, he made it pretty obvious he was going to jump. I mean, he asked for parachutes, He, you know. Right. And I'm sure the crew was shitting themselves because he asked for four parachutes. They're probably like, oh, fuck. He's taking us all with him. Absolutely. Especially when he let almost everybody off of that plane. Yeah. They probably were thinking, like, which one of us are going to go with this guy? Yeah. So they took off, headed for Mexico via Reno, which is, I don't think, the best way to get to Mexico, but... They decided that's where they would stop for gas. So when the plane took off, it was just Cooper, the pilot, Scott, the co-pilot, Radisak, the flight engineer, Harold Anderson, and the flight attendant, Tina Mucklow. They even let Flo Schaffner off. He let everybody off. All the passengers, everybody. It was just them. I think one of my favorite parts about this is that two fighter jets followed them from a nearby Air Force base, and they were instructed to fly above and below the plane. 
you know, it's hard to do that at a low speed, especially when you're a fighter jet. So yeah, and there was a third plane as well, but it it ran out of fuel and had to had to depart. Yeah, I was gonna say I, th- I I everything that I've heard said that they couldn't do it. They couldn't go that slow. Those planes aren't meant to go that slow. I thought that the two planes could follow them, but there was a third that couldn't. But the other two, though it was harder, they were able to keep that. In- no, I heard they were never able to get visual on the plane. Oh, but okay. They knew yes, it was somewhere above them, but and somewhere yeah. below them, but they were never able to see it. Right. And so that is true. What I what I read and saw was that it was too like foggy for them to see, so they weren't able to do it because of that. Yeah, the weather was terrible. The weather it was a crazy storm. I don't know if we even mentioned that, but I feel like we don't have to mention every little detail because everybody knows the story. Yeah. Well, and right before Thanksgiving too, in November, you ex- I would expect anyway that it would be. You know, pretty, well, it's also storm. the Northwest, so I'm I. Yeah, definitely. whenever I think of Portland and Seattle, I think it's just raining there all year, every day. I've been to Seattle, and it was not raining there when I went. But you're right; that is what p- most people know, and that's what we're told. So we'll go with that. It was yeah. raining in Seattle; it always is. Yeah. So after a few minutes, Cooper told Tina Mucklow to go up to the cockpit and close the curtain and don't come back. She was like, Ugh. but yeah, but she turned around when she saw him. He was standing in the aisle and. She says it looked like he was putting something around his waist. Obviously, that was most likely a parachute. Yeah. But she all she says is he was fumbling in the center of the aisle, just kind of putting something or what looked like around his waist, which again is what we yeah, assume. But would can be you imagine, like when he told her to go up into the cockpit? We obviously know the end of the story. We know he jumps and that's the end of it, you know. But like she doesn't know, so he tells her to go up into the cockpit. She doesn't know what's happening. She's probably sitting there freaking out. Probably hoping he jumps off. Yeah, that's true too. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then around 8 p.m., a warning light came on that those stairs that he had wanted down and they told him had to come up, they had been opened. They had been activated. And the co-pilot asked Cooper over the intercom if he needed assistance. And D.B. Cooper declined. And they noticed a change in their air pressure. So they knew that the stairs were open and they knew that he jumped because they felt a significant bump. At 8.13, so at 8 o'clock, this guy's getting ready, he's going, it's dark outside, obviously it's November, and he just goes for it, and he just takes off. Yeah, I think it's smart in a way that the crew noted the 8.13 timestamp, that they felt the bump, but at the same time, it's like, oh man, don't you wish it was like nowadays technology where they had some sort of way to watch him and see when he took, oh, it's like, oh. Oh, absolutely, but I mean... If this was today, this dude probably isn't getting away. Oh, unknown, of course not. You know, like, well, he's never getting on a plane with a bomb nowadays. That's definitely true. Yeah. So they land in Reno. Obviously, the FBI's there, the police and everything. And when they circle the plane and they start to slowly go in and check everything, he's gone. But there is one piece of evidence that's that's still with him. You want to tell us what it is? Oh, there's like five pieces of evidence. He left a whole bunch of stuff. But my favorite one is that he left behind a JCPenney clip-on tie. Yeah. I, of all of the stuff that happens, like you, you get this feeling this guy is kind of well-off. He's well-to-do. He's in a nice suit. He looks great. He's or- ordering bourbon and soda. No, I think he was playing the part. I think so, too, because he leaves behind a JCPenney's clip-on tie. Yeah. That doesn't scream, you know, well-to-do. Well, there's a whole theory about that on why that would be, so we'll get into that. But he also left two of the four parachutes. He took a regular parachute, and then he took a reserve parachute, and then he cut up one of the other parachutes to use the cord they're assuming to tie the bag of money around his waist. That would make sense. I could see that. Yeah. But 
he left behind some evidence. His fingerprints were on that glass of bourbon, mm-hmm. and they left behind some cigarette butts. Mm-hmm. Which, don't you wish we had those cigarette butts now? We'd know who he was in a I second. Sure because of DNA Doe Project would have figured out who he was. Well, probably not them, but they would have used genetic genealogy to figure out who he was. But of course, I'm sure they lost the cigarette butts or somebody shit the bed on that. If you're interested, go on Amazon Smile and make DNA Doe Project your Amazon <laughs> Smile account so you can donate to them. So it's not just Erica and her mom donating to DNA Doe Project and we can have more unsolved mysteries solved. Yep. So the media frenzy around this after it happened was pretty insane. And there was a misprint by a newspaper that printed his name as D.B. Cooper when he bought the ticket as Dan Cooper. And a whole bunch of other newspapers just like copied it and it stuck. Yeah, that's interesting, too, is that he bought it as Dan Cooper and and says that his name is Dan Cooper. But somehow he got D.B. Cooper and that's where it's taken off. And that's what we know of it today. Well, and the other thing why the FBI didn't really correct that, I'm sure, is because everybody wants to be related to this case. And everybody thinks everybody thinks it's their uncle or their dad or, you know, their husband or ex-husband. Yeah. And so when they call in with tips, if they use the term D.B. or you know, my husband said he was DB or whatever, then it's not legit. But if they said Dan, although now they released all that information, so we know it was Dan. But I think in the beginning, I don't think they did. I think they let the public think that he bought the ticket as DB. That's a good way to weed people out from, you know, from the others and find out who's real and who isn't. Mm -hmm. Totally. So it was pretty hard to pinpoint the location to search because it was the Northwest where it's just a lot of forest and land and and it was dark. Yeah. And the weather, the storm, nobody seeing him jump out of the plane. Everything makes it difficult to decide where he would have landed because even if they were off by five seconds or 10 seconds of when he jumped, it could change his landing spot on the ground by miles. Oh, there's lots of things that could that come into play here. They even tried to recreate the flight and they pushed a 200 pound sled off the back of the plane to try to emulate the bump. So they think that at 813... It's, that's why his likely jump time is, is because of the recreation that they did. Oh, yeah. Like you said, they think it was accurate. They were able to make the same kind of bump. So they've searched a zillion miles of forest. Uh, it has to be even more than that. You you do tend to exaggerate things, but I think a zillion is probably right in the ballpark yeah. of the miles of forest that these guys have gone through. And they have found no trace of Cooper or his parachute which I think is really interesting that even the parachute wasn't even found because, okay, he died. No problem. Whatever. But where did the parachute go? Yeah. Parachute didn't just disappear. Well, they used to teach army paratroopers to bury their parachutes when they fell in enemy territory. We can get into that a little I know, bit later, I know. Too. I just... We're not quite But there's there. a whole bunch of reasons why they wouldn't find the parachute. But that's my always my thing when everybody's like, oh, he died in the jump. It's like, where'd the parachute go then? I don't think he died in the jump. I definitely don't. That's... I'm going to... Spoiler alert. I don't think he died in the jump. I don't think the FBI thinks so either, or they wouldn't have investigated it for 40 years. They would have said, oh, he died in the jump and gave up. So before the FBI gave him the money, I think we forgot to mention that they ran every single bill through microfiche, which is like early day Xeroxing pretty much. So they had all the serial numbers of the money that they gave him. So they released all those serial numbers to the banks and the casinos and the racetracks, thinking that this guy probably was hard up for money because he was a gambling addict or some sort, you know, something. 
They released it to big financial institutions to keep a lookout for the serial numbers, and that never turned up anything. And it wasn't until 1972, early 1972, that they released the, to the public, but none of the money was ever found in circulation. And that, that just blows my mind. That Well... Why would he ask for so much money and then not use it? Well, that's the other thing, though. I mean, how often do you really look at the serial numbers on your money? Like, maybe that money was in circulation and nobody noticed. $200,000 of $20 bills. I'm going to say that that's probably going to get seen by somebody at some point. Well, maybe he didn't spend all of it. Maybe he spent 20 bucks here and 20 bucks there. And But that's what I'm saying, though, is even still, you would think eventually somebody would be like, oh, I guess I should check. Maybe. I just did the math. $200,000 divided by 20 is $10,020 bills. Yeah. So they had to know. That's $10,020 bills. There is no way that $10,020 bills have gone just not seen into circulation. I just I just don't believe well, it. Well, maybe he bought something on the black market. I don't know. Uh, that I believe. Yeah. So after none of the money was ever found in circulation, they started relooking at the flight path. And there was a Continental Airline pilot named Tom Bohan who was on a flight that was four minutes behind D.B. Cooper's. And with his help, they determined different wind calculations and decided by some scientific method that they were off from the original search area based on the weather from that night. So they were searching in the wrong area the whole time, probably. Yeah. And... I, that, is, that makes a lot of sense. For that time period, they didn't have a lot of technology going on. That makes a lot of sense. Side note, Continental Airlines was the same airline that my papa used to fly for. Oh, I had no idea yeah. that. I wonder if he knows this, Tom Bohan. Thank you, Papa Joe. Oh, why haven't you asked him? I don't know. We should have. Can you send him or Nori a text real quick? Yeah, I could. Anyway... I should ask Papa because a lot of people say, too, that back then air piracy was like super popular and it happened all the time. And you would just end up on flights to Cuba because Cuban nationals wanted to go home. And I wonder how true that really is. Like, I should ask him. Yeah, definitely ask him. Hey, were you ever hijacked and taken to Cuba by any chance? I feel like if he was, he would have mentioned that probably like at Christmas or something. <sighs> I don't know. You know how you know how that generation is. They're just kind of like, oh yeah, that happened. I was hijacked and held at gunpoint, but you you get through it. That's just how you do. <gasps> Maybe Papa Joe is DB Cooper. Oh my God, we haven't thought of that before. I will say he doesn't look anything like the sketch, though. So that's there true is story. that. But I also I also have only seen Papa Joe in the last twenty years. So who knows what he looks like in nineteen seventy one? One DB Cooper was only five ten, and Papa's like six five. So. Unlikely they no, mix that not. up. Yeah, he is. He's like 6'4". Not a what? No, the hell he is. I know Papa Joe. He's not 6'4". <laughs> okay. Uh, not a fucking chance he's 6'4". Text mom and ask her, ask him, ask her how tall he is. Your mom, your mom's just going to text us both afterwards and be like, Papa's 6'10". You guys are both wrong. <laughs> <laughs> You're both way off. <laughs> we probably are way off. So, anyways, probably like five seven. Anyway, nothing's really discovered again until 1980, when an eight-year-old boy named Brian Ingram found fifty-eight hundred dollars of the ransom money, and it was near the second believed landing site, not the first one. Which makes things very interesting because obviously their flight pattern was off. Yeah, they also found the exit 
uh, placard from the stairs. No, they found a exit placard from stairs. They've never said whether or not it's from that plane. Like, they should know whether the exit placard was missing or not, right? You would think, but I can also see how maybe placards like that just were taken, like, just it fell off and not put back on. I don't know. That placard was found six miles from where they think he jumped. What are the chances that they're going to find a placard from an airplane in the same area? In the lawless land of the 1970s to 80s, anything can happen. You and your lawless land thing, dude. I like, love thinking that this that like 96 and before was a lawless land. So- Being born in 87 really grinds my gears because I feel like I could have gotten away with so much more stuff than I could have just because <laughs> everything was a lawless land. I like to oh, think yeah. that maybe I was a pirate. You the mastermind. I can't even no. go to the grocery store without you knowing. And I think I can get away with a... You're not You're not a criminal. You would never do anything wrong. It's true. I'm really not that intelligent in that way. Like, I mean, for the most part, I'm pretty good book-wise. But yeah, I probably would never spend the time or have the ability to put some kind of high-intensive plan together with dynamite and, and robbing a plane and whatnot. Yeah. And it wasn't until 2007 that the FBI released a bunch of info, which... Shoots he used, partial DNA, new composite sketches, cost of the ticket, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, like a lot of the information that we have from this case is since then. Like they didn't know all of that back in 71. Well, the FBI did, but us enthusiasts didn't know. (laughs) The DNA part is really interesting because they say they got the DNA from the clip-on tie. It's like, what about the cigarette butts, guys? That's a pretty DNA-heavy item. Yeah. I've seen 476 episodes of Cold Case Files where they solve it with a cigarette butt. Like, if we had the cigarette butt, we'd be done with this. What do they do with those cigarette butts? They just toss them out? I have no idea. Oh. I feel like they just flushed them. 1971. Lawless land. Like I keep saying. Yeah. Somebody was probably like, ooh, these stink, and they just threw them away. <laughs> well, they do stink, so I don't blame them. No, I know, but... <laughs> This could be solved. (laughs) Yeah, you know, they didn't have the DNA then, so I understand that they didn't save those kinds of things. Yeah. So in 2009, a paleontologist named Tom Kay assembled a team of armchair detectives, web sleuths, whatever you want to call them. And they call themselves the Cooper Research Team, but it's like legit people. They're scientists. They're. This sounds like more of a, a research team that Sheldon Cooper put together. Yeah. Yeah. So. They determined that there was heavy metals on the clip-on tie that most people in regular life in 1971 would have never come in contact with. Things like titanium, cerium, strontium sulfide. Cerium. Cerium. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Cerium. When did you take a science class? I've never taken one, but I know that cerium is an element. Oh. Even in high school, I I wasn't advanced enough. They wouldn't let me take chemistry, but I know cerium is an element. Okay, well, cerium, whatever. Damn, Grant, I was really proud of myself. You should be. I said that strontium sulfide one perfect, I thought. But now I think it's strontium. Strontiums. I don't know. Anyway, they were really rare metals at the time, and one of the only factories known to be using any of those was Boeing. Which I think is really interesting that if you can pinpoint down to that, you would think that you could probably hone in on maybe who this person was. Maybe. And that's the other clip-on tie theory some people were talking about is that managers in these factories would wear suits and ties because they were a manager, but then if they had to go down into the line and all that stuff, they would clip their tie off and not be wearing a suit and tie. So what did it come to? 
on July 8th, 2016, the FBI announced that they give up. They just like threw their hands in the air and they were like, we're done with this case. Unless they find his body, the money or the parachute, they're like, we're not investigating this anymore. But nobody else gave up because everybody else is still pretty obsessed with it. Right. So there's there's a lot of suspects for this case, because like you mentioned before, people on their deathbeds or just random people have claimed, hey, I'm D.B. Cooper hasn't really filled out as well. But so let's go over some of the main suspects since we can't go over every single one. We'll just go over a few. Kenneth Peter Christensen was an army paratrooper who, after World War II, worked for Northwest Orient Airlines as a mechanic. He lived in Seattle. He was 45 at the time of the hijacking. His brother Lyle says that he told him on his deathbed in 1994 that he had something he should tell him, but never said what it was. So the FBI has commented on him and said there's not enough evidence that he's D.B. Cooper. Barbara Dayton was another person of of interest, and she was a person of interest because she was a pilot and she was a librarian, but she was also born as Robert Dayton, and she was a World War II veteran, and she tried to become a commercial airline pilot, and she never made it. Uh, She reportedly confessed two years later that she was D.B. Cooper, and then she did it to get back at the FFA. (laughs) The FFA. (laughs) Yeah, the Future Farmers of America. (laughs) Really stick it to them, huh? That'd be a real kick in the pants to them. They'd yeah. be like, who are you? The, the FAA and the airlines for not letting her become a pilot. And she dressed as a man and did the hijacking, and she would have been 45 at the time of the incident. Um, so that one does kind of line up a little bit. She died in 2002, and the FBI never commented if she was actually a suspect or not. Yeah, another pretty interesting one is Sheridan Peterson. He was 45 at the time of the hijacking, and he was another World War II vet who worked for Boeing in Seattle. And he was a suspect early on because he was a smoke jumper and an adrenaline junkie. And he teased that he was D.B. Cooper, but whenever the FBI interviewed him, he always claimed he was in Nepal at the time of the hijacking. And he died earlier this year, but... Interesting. You know, again, another really logical choice. Someone who's got the experience right around the same time, the age everything in there but you know we'll never know for sure especially since he recently died yeah and that's the other thing that's funny about sheridan peterson too because he would like joke with people that he was db cooper but then i guess when they interviewed him when the fbi interviewed him he was real with them and said no i was in nepal and he proved it so the fbi says that he was out of the country and just not him And that's a common theme with every suspect. The FBI comes out and they're like, nope, not him. DNA doesn't match. Is there any evidence? What DNA do we have? What do they have on him that we know if it is or it isn't? I I mean, they lost the cigarettes. Do we have anything of that that glass with his fingerprints on it? I didn't think so. Well, they say that JCPenney tie has DNA on it. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So let's just go over like one more and then we can move on from the suspects because... We could name 15 and they're not going to be, not everybody's going to have their favorite suspect in this group because we could literally go on all night and not even name a quarter of the suspects. Right, so pick just one more. Who's one more that you want to talk? Uh, Walter Recca. Oh, that's a good one. Walter Recca was 38 at the time. He was another vet and he had extensive parachuting experience. In 2018, his best friend Carl claims that he admitted to him that he was DB and recorded a combo of it and gave him written permission to share his story after his death. But these were done in 2008 and the recordings had details that weren't public yet. He died in 2014 and the FBI will not comment on him and whether or not they think he did it or not. 
I like how he gave his best friend permission to release the recordings after he died, but his best friend did it before he died. So I was like, mm, I wonder what happened I like there. that he gave his best friend permission <laughs> to basically make a ton of money off of him. And he went, yeah, that's great, but I'm going to do it prematurely while you're still alive. So, oh, well. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Well, the problem with the suspect list is it's never ending. It's like infinity because the physical description of D.B. Cooper has never changed. And it's pretty reliable because there was a lot of witnesses between the flight attendants and the pilots and the other people on the plane. Pretty much everybody agrees that he was 5'10", 180 pounds, brown hair, brown eyes, and he was in his mid-40s and super generic. He looked like every other guy. Every other white guy. Yeah. So there's a million suspects and everybody thinks they're related to one. Why? I don't know. Because everybody wants to be DB or everybody wants to be related to him. I don't know what the draw is. It's crazy. Well, I even did it myself an hour ago when I said my fucking grandpa might have been DB. <laughs> who knows? Maybe he was. But There's something about this case that just makes everybody want to be connected to it it's weird it's because it could be it's anybody's guess anybody could be this guy i mean really truly we probably never will find out who the of course we won't but that's what makes it so great that that is what makes it so great i just want to throw out there again on my deathbed i'm db cooper too (laughs) just in case i forget because i'm actively dying i want everyone to remember that when i'm dying i was db cooper i wasn't born at the time (laughs) <laughs> but I'm I'm admitting it to it now that I was D.B. Cooper. Come right. at me. Womp, womp, it womp. almost seems like every time a perfect suspect comes up, the FBI goes, nope, doesn't match. It's like, are you even running this, guys? Because I feel like in 2016, you said you gave up. So so why are you still crushing our dreams? Yeah. like I'm like, hey, don't ruin it for the rest of us. We're having fun here. So are we going to talk about the murder of the parachute guy? Yeah, I don't know anything about it. So you need to. What? Yeah. I don't know anything about this. Dude, Earl Cossey is the guy that owned the skydiving school that they got the parachutes from. And when he gave them the four parachutes, I don't even think we talked about this earlier in the episode because I figured everybody knows. One of the reserve parachutes that they gave DB by accident was a training parachute that was sewed shut, which is actually the one he ended up jumping with as his reserve. So he had a real one. And then he had a reserve, and his reserve was actually sewn shut, which is unfortunate if he had to use it. But the guy who owned the skydiving school that gave them the parachutes was murdered. And there's a whole rabbit hole you can go down about that on whether or not that's related to D.B. Cooper or not. Like, maybe he was pissed that his reserve parachute was sewn shut. That that makes things really interesting, too, because it does kind of make things sound like D.B. Cooper really the the professional that we thought he was, it really does throw a whole wrench into this because a parachuter who knew what he was doing would know that that parachute wouldn't have worked. You would think. Yeah. You would at least think correct. I don't know. Maybe it was dark on the plane (laughs) or maybe he didn't take a reserve shoot. Maybe he just took his regular one. I don't know if how, I mean, I don't think you would, you should do that, but I also don't think you should jump out of a plane in the middle of a, rainstorm after you've just hijacked a right. plane. So either he was a real expert or a real novice. It's hard. It's kind of hard to say because a real expert would know that it's probably not the best conditions, but I can handle it. A novice would say, I don't know. Three, two, one, here I go. <laughs> I think the opposite. I think an expert would be confident and say, I could do it. And he would do it. And a novice would be like, no way in fucking hell I'm jumping out of that plane. 
Uh, I I see it the opposite way. I think a novice could be like, or a, an expert would be like, this is, these conditions aren't aren't ideal. I don't want to die. A novice goes, yeah, you just jump out and you pull the cord and everything happens for for a reason. God, God will get you. <laughs> <laughs> you know. So, do you have any suspects or anybody you think is DB besides have you me? Solved it. Besides me? Okay, that joke's only funny once, so I don't know where you think that I'm joke is funny every out. single time. No, it's not. <laughs> um, Otherwise, I would have been laughing. Oh. Well, my favorite one is Sheridan Peterson. To me, everything seems to line up really well. He worked at Boeing in Seattle. He had jumpers experience. So for me, though he says that he was in Nepal at the time, that's who I give my, my uh, nod to as possibly being the guy, most likely being the guy, I should say as being uh, Dan Cooper. So I think I've solved it. Erica, have you solved it? I solve it every time I watch a documentary about this. One day I'll be like, oh, it's this guy. And then the next documentary I watch, I'm like, oh, it's this guy. It literally could be anybody. Today, my favorite one is Walter Recca because he had info on those tapes that hadn't been released to the public yet. But I reserve the right to change my mind probably before we even get this uploaded because I've been convinced before and I've been way wrong. If we're if we're going off of today's favorite, your papa is my favorite, actually, as the suspect <laughs> who I think might be it. I'll have to let him know. Definitely. We'll, we'll call Papa Joe together and tell him, hey, Papa Joe. Are you DB? You're under arrest. Oh, we can go that way, too. Oh. You're just going straight to arrest? Perfect. I was willing to put him in cuffs. Apparently, it's your grandfather. I understand you got to give him a little <laughs> bit of wiggle room or whatnot. Oh, if my grandpa turns out to be DB, I'm going to be one of those assholes all over the news. It's like, hey, it's my grandpa. Just like all these other people. To be honest, if if one of my family members commits <laughs> m- most crimes, I'm telling. If I find out they're DB Cooper, we're partying. We're celebrating. This is a crime without victims. I mean... Yeah, he hijacked a plane and probably caused some emotional disturbance for some people. But at the end of the day, the dude jumped out. We have no idea where he is. He's a Well, the victim is Northwest Orient Airlines. They lost $200,000. Take the risk. That's what happens when you're the owner. You might get hijacked. <laughs> that's why I don't own anything. <laughs> I don't want to get hijacked. Oh, that, that's why that's, you don't That is anything? the reason. Yeah, I've been holding on to it for a while. <laughs> I don't own anything because I'm terrified of being hijacked by anybody. Pirates or... You know, international terrorists or domestic terrorists. Oh, speaking of pirates, I feel like that's why this story is so awesome because they use the term air piracy, and I think people just love that. He is a sky pirate. I kind of want to be a sky pirate. Well, I guess that's it because we could go on all night about DB Cooper, and I'm sure the rest of you can too. So, if you've solved the DB Cooper case, please come to our Instagram at From Crime to Crime. We would love to know who you think or know is actually DB Cooper. If you've written a thesis paper on it, you can send it to from crime to crime podcast at gmail.com and we won't read it, but we will be very excited that you send it to us. I'll read it. One of us will read it and talk to the other one about it, which is really the yeah, important thing. I think thing. we both know who does all the research on this podcast. 100% it's Erica. Erica does everything on this podcast. <laughs> I'm just here because I'm pretty. Yeah. Every once in a while, you're funny. That's what I, That's why you brought me along. So one more thing that I want to say before we go is thank you. We've gotten a lot of feedback from our first couple episodes and it's been very positive and we love you all can't appreciate you more thank you we're glad that you're enjoying it as much as we're enjoying making it and if you had fun and you enjoyed this episode please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts and if you didn't keep it to yourselves we're not trying to get better yeah. 
Yes, we are trying to get better. We're always trying to get better, but message us privately so it's not so embarrassing, please. Well, you got anything left, Erica? No. (laughs) This podcast is probably going to get edited down to a normal amount, but we've been talking about D.B. Cooper for hours. Literally like two hours. I'm ready to go to bed. All right. Yeah. I love you. Love you too. I'm out. Bye.